0: If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me this morning to Mark chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 27 through 38 together. You know, um, I know we don't have a big senior class, but we have two seniors that love the Lord and have incredibly bright futures, don't we? You know, every single person in this room, young and old, have the potentially potential to eternally impact this world for Jesus Christ. I love what Ronald Reagan said in his farewell speech. He said, once you begin a great movement, there's no telling where it will end. We meant to change a nation, and instead we changed the world. When I think about great movements throughout human history, the very first one that I think about in, in, in a post-resurrected world is, is that first day of Pentecost, that early church and the movement that they began. Think about that first day. That the Holy Spirit came and rained down. Thousands upon thousands came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ on day one. And we're told after that, that day after day after day, people were added to the kingdom. Think about the Protestant Reformation led by Martin Luther. He had a passion for Jesus And he had a passion for the Word of God. And he had a passion to see the Word of God put into the hands of the people of God. Henry Ford, man, he was passionate about the automobile. Thomas Edison was passionate about lighting up the world. The Wright brothers were passionate about flight. Martin Luther King Jr. was passionate about racial equality and equal rights. In his famous speech, I Have a Dream, he said, One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. Billy Graham, he was passionate about proclaiming the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and he literally went to the nations with the gospel. Each of those great movements in history changed our world forever. And D.L. Moody said this. He said, every great movement of God can be traced to a kneeling figure. When I think about great revivals that have swept across our world, in the last several hundred years, those revivals always began with young people. I don't know about you, but I want to see change come across our land. And I look forward to hearing our high school graduates, our college graduates, and our young adults change this world for Jesus Christ. Church, all of us have two dates that will one day go on our tombstone. There will be the date of our birth and the date of our our, our death. Those two dates are significant, but nowhere near as significant as the dash that separates those dates. All of us get one dash, don't we? As Joni Erickson-Todd has said, we all get one chance in all of human history to change the world. I've entitled this message, Dash into the Future. And our message point this morning is this, let us all become world changers. And I want you to know, it doesn't matter how young you are or how old you are, all of us can impact this world for Jesus Christ. Notice our first point this morning. A movement requires a leader. In verses 27 through 30 of Mark chapter 8, we read, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one. About him. You know, there is no greater leader in all of human history than Jesus Christ, is there? In our passage this morning, we are told of a time that Jesus went with his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. And there he asked his disciples and the crowd a series of questions. It's interesting the city that Jesus chose. In the preacher's commentary, um, the writer talks about Caesarea Philippi. And, and he says that Caesarea Philippi was a place where gods were born and gods were made. In ancient history, the city gained its fame as a center for bell worship. Greeks found their god of gods at that same site. According to Greek mythology, the birth of Pan, god of nature, took place in a cave from which sprang the waters of the Jordan River. By Jesus' time, this place was part of the Roman Empire. And the site of a magnificent marble temple was built in honor of Caesar Augustus, the emperor of Rome. It would also be in Caesarea Caesarea Philippi that Jesus would ask his disciples two questions. His first question, who do people say that I am? Or for the sake of your notes, what do people say about Jesus? This was a great question. How the disciples answered this will indicate how far and wide the message of Jesus has spread up until this point. So the disciples, in a very complimentary way, say, some say John the Baptist. I read once that if you want to start a great movement, find you a John the Baptist. Others said Jesus was Elijah, believing he had come to fulfill the prophecy as written about and and declared by Malachi in Malachi chapter 4. We read, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. So some people thought that he um, was Elijah and then others thought that he was a prophet. People did not know who he was, but they were certain he was unmatched in all of human history. As a follow-up question, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Or for note' sake, what do you say about Jesus? That one question is a, is a question that every man, woman, student, and child will have to answer at some point in their lives. As, as we read in Philippi, Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. One day every person will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior of their lives. The problem with that is some people are going to um, acknowledge Jesus when it's too late, when they're within the depths of the earth, as this scripture indicates. I pray that every single one of us in this room have already declared that Jesus is Savior and Lord of our lives. So, So the question that was posed by Jesus is a question that we must grapple with. So Jesus wants to know from us, who do you say I am? And when the disciples were asked this question, Peter steps up and he answered the question for the rest of the disciples when he said, you are the Christ. He did not say that half-heartedly. He said that in the midst of the gods of this world. He said, you are the Christ. Jesus is not one of many gods. He is the one true God. Jesus said of himself in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. There's one way to God the Father, that is through God the Son. There are not 22,000 different ways. There is but one way. And Peter, right here, he gets it right when he says you are the Christ. Notice next, a movement requires a sacrificial leader. You know, every leader must sacrifice something, right? Think about the sacrifices necessary to lead well. Leaders rise early. Oftentimes, leaders go to bed late. They maximize their time. Leaders train hard. Leaders are disciplined. Leaders are well-versed and well-studied. And we know there is a price to be paid in order to be a great leader. For Jesus, the price was death. And that death was for your benefit and my benefit and for the benefit of every single person outside the doors of this church. He loved you so much that he died for you. In Mark 8, 31 through 33, Jesus goes on to say, And he began to teach them, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So here is the picture. Jesus. Peter has just declared that Jesus is the Christ. Moments later, Peter has the audacity to pull the Lord aside to try to clarify who he is and what his role in human history was to be. Peter wants Jesus to know that the God of the universe is not to be a suffering servant, but he is to be a righteous judge and ruler and king after King David. But Jesus turns and rebukes Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. Can you imagine the Lord pulling you aside and saying, get behind me, Satan? That came just moments after Peter declared Jesus to be the Christ. And now Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Satan has been trying since the beginning of time to thwart God's plan. And he's been trying to use you and I to accomplish it. How often have you tried, To persuade the Lord to do what you think is best. We say, You know, God, I would have done this, or I would not have allowed that to happen. I would have saved that person, but I would have cursed that person. I would have kept that storm from hitting this community. It should have actually hit that community. I don't think any of us have ever done that, but we question. At times, God's um, divine plans. The problem is the personal pronoun, I. In Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, we read, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are, are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Peter thought he knew what was best for Jesus, but Jesus made it clear that he did not. Notice next, a movement requires personal sacrifice. In verse 34, we read, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You know, Jesus has just asked his disciples who he is. Now he calls the crowd together. Remember, they are in the midst of this pagan city. They're surrounded by The little gods that have been turned into big gods for their personal enjoyment. And by calling the crowd to him, Jesus indicates that he is not just calling preachers and teachers and missionaries and theologians to a life of reckless abandonment. He is calling all people to a life of sacrifice and abandonment. That means he is calling the housewife, the doctor, the lawyer, the teacher, the farmer, the truck driver, the student, the banker, the salesman. Jesus is calling all of us to be his disciples. Not only is he calling us to be his disciples, but he's also calling us to be disciple makers, isn't he? He tells us that in Matthew chapter 28. In verse 34, Jesus calls us to deny ourselves. What does it mean to deny? What does it mean when you think about that word deny? What does it mean? One Dictionary puts it this way, to refuse, to recognize, or acknowledge. It means to reject, renounce, or disown. Jesus is calling the crowd here to deny who they are. He is saying that if you want to follow me, understand my way is a way that leads to suffering. My way is going to lead to ridicule. My way is a lonely way. You will lose family support, friends, relationships will suffer. It will contain a cross. It will also eventually maybe even bring about death. You know, in some cultures, if you turn from, if a person turns away um, and, and um, from the, their parents' religion and follows after Jesus, it could mean death to them or at the the least for many of these places and religions, it means that they are going to be disowned by their family. These students and adults count the cost often before they follow Jesus, knowing the ramifications. Jesus calls the crowd together for one of those define the relationships moments, doesn't he? He is seeking their allegiance and their commitment. How many of you have ever had a define-the-relationship moment? Raise your hand. If you're married, you've had a define-the-relationship moment, haven't you? You had that talk at some point. Danny and I had our define-the-relationship talk at Lake LeVon over 27 years ago. We had been hanging out for several months, We had tried to have that awkward talk before, but I failed miserably, okay? I will admit that. Danny asked me one day on the telephone, when people ask what we are doing, what do you say? Now understand, when she asked me that question, we had been spending a lot of time together. We had been going to movies together, going out to eat together. We we were just hanging out an awful lot. So when she asked me that question, I literally froze up. Um, I wanted to say that we were dating, and one day I was going to marry her, and, and, and I wanted to say that. But instead, I said, we are hanging out. Guess what? She did not like that answer. Not long after that on the banks of Lake Levon, I would get it right. We officially became boyfriend and girlfriend. A few months after that, um, we got engaged. A few months after that, we got married. So Jesus pulls a crowd together for a define the relationship talk. He says, if you want to be my disciple, it's going to cost you everything. Jesus also calls us to take up our cross. When you think, when you and I think of the cross today, we see a A symbol of atonement and grace, forgiveness and love. We display the cross in our homes, on our vehicles, around our necks. And even some of you in this room may have the cross inked on your body. 2,000 years ago, the cross meant one thing, and that was death. Not just any death, but a torturous death. The Romans forced those who were going to die on the cross to first carry their cross to the hill on which they were to die upon. Jesus is telling us in this room that if we are going to be his disciples, then we must be prepared to die. That doesn't sound like much fun, does it? For some of you, when you came to Christ, you heard this passage right here or a passage similar to it. Someone challenged you to count the cost, to consider the cost before following Jesus. You were told that following Jesus might mean that you will have to die in the jungles of South America or at the hands of mercenaries in Africa or be thrown in a jail cell in Asia or the Middle East. Some of you, like me, came to Christ um, at Vacation Bible School or at church camp or someone shared the plan of salvation with you. If you were like me, you didn't hear this verse. Man, you kind of got the G-rated version of Christianity, didn't you? Someone shared John 3.16 with with us and told us to walk an aisle and prayer, prayer, and we would spend eternity with Jesus in heaven. And that's absolutely right. But salvation is more than a prayer. We are called to be like Jesus in his life and like him in his death. Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Jim Elliot said, blessed is the man who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. There is a cost to following Jesus. Jesus said in Luke 14, 27, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciples. Know this, it's not easy to be a follower of Jesus, is it? Many sacrifices are to be taken daily in order to die to self. But there is no greater reward that a person can ever experience than come into faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I were hardwired to know Jesus and to serve Jesus and to make Jesus know. This past Tuesday night, we held the services for the Myers' um, son-in-law. And following that service, I was kind of standing down here to um, the the right of the stage. And um, a family that I used to attend church with came up to me and we were talking. And we were talking about life and church, and I asked them what church they were attending now. And they just kind of paused for a moment. And they told me that they had attended some churches, but they hadn't gotten plugged in. And this family was a very active um, um, person in, in um, their last church. They said they haven't gotten plugged back in since COVID. And when I hear things like that, it just still blows my mind. How many years are we past COVID now? And there's still people that are on the sidelines, not yet plugged back into church. And I understand for health reasons when that occurs. But you and I were created not to sit on the sidelines We were created to be actively involved in Christ's church. You know who does not want you and I to be involved in church? The devil. You know who loves that 70% of high school graduates stop attending church when they go to college? The devil. In fact, Jesus said of the devil in John 10.10 that he comes only to steal and kill and destroy. He's out to destroy the hearts of our young people. And we're seeing that more and more within our school system, starting um, when they're in preschool all the way up until when they are working on their doctorate degrees. We are seeing um, the devil take control of the hearts and minds of our young people. But what did Jesus say? Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Or, as some of your translations say, to the full. Next, Jesus calls us to follow him. When you and I commit to following after Jesus, it means our allegiance is bound to him and to him alone. It means he is the one true God and we will have no other gods besides him. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Every day we must decide who we are going to follow. Notice how Jesus concludes this section of scripture in Mark chapter 8, verses 35 through 38. For whoever would save his life will lose it. For Christ, we actually gain life, don't we? I read this week, if Christians in North Korea are found possessing a Bible, they face the death penalty and family members, including children, are sentenced to imprisonment. Not long ago, there was an incident where a two-year-old child was sentenced to life in prison after his parents were caught possessing a Bible. There are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people right now in a North Korean prison camp because they chose to follow Jesus Christ. These men and women understand the cost, but they consider the punishment worth it. That's what it means to follow Jesus, isn't it? to consider the punishment worth it because we know what the reward ultimately is. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, many people praised him with their lips. We read in Matthew 21, 9, And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. We also know a few days after that, many of those that would praise Jesus on that triumphant entry day would also yell out and scream, crucify him, crucify him. As we conclude our message this morning, I pray that every single one of us in this room will recognize that we are part of the greatest movement in all of human history. And I hope we will also recognize that the Lord is not done yet. There is a lost and dying world outside the doors of these church, this church. And just as Jesus said to his disciples some 2,000 years ago that the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few, that very same statement is true today. We know that there's a harvest waiting to be reaped outside the doors of this church. But in order to reap that harvest, we have to go to them with the gospel. You may be here this morning. You do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. If that's you, I want to invite you this morning to place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I also want to help all of us recognize there is a cost to following Jesus. The road ahead will not be easy, but it certainly will be rewarding. Come to Jesus and repent of your sins. Confess Jesus to be Lord and Savior of your life. Believe that Jesus died for you, and three days later he defeated death and rose to life again. Come this morning if you have not already and experienced the abundant life that Jesus is making available to all of us. Let's stand together. I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer. If there's a decision you need to make, you come. Father God, we come before you this morning. Father, just thanking you for another opportunity to gather together as a faith family to worship and to open up your word and to study your word. Father, I know that this morning's message is one of those messages that just um, is challenging. But Father, it's a message that every young person and adult needs to hear, because there is a cost to following after you. But Father, more than the cost, there is a great, great, great reward to following you and to being your disciple. The reward of knowing you is the gift that we get, um, which is eternal life. But the reward of being a disciple of yours is the privilege it is to see another person come to faith in you father i pray that you will use us as your hands and feet i pray that you will you you as a result of our time today in this room in our small group rooms father will scatter throughout all of this community and proclaim the good news of salvation father i pray that you'll move now during this time of invitation for it's in jesus name we pray amen